Father, I thank you for the morning. I thank you, uh, Father, even though it's, it's cool outside, you have blessed us in many, many ways. Father, as we, as we lead up to Easter, um, may our, our hearts, Father, be tugged by the glory of the gospel and all that we're celebrating. Father, it seems like uh, life can so easily just turn into routine week after week and Sunday after Sunday. But, Father, please help us, even this morning, um, to drink heavily from your word. Father, to be moved by your Holy Spirit as we worship um, and celebrate, Father, the coming of your Son and uh, his death and resurrection that offers us salvation. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. Please speak through me this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10. If you would uh, please turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. All right. If you haven't been with us for the last couple weeks, that's okay. Um, We've been in Hebrews for several weeks now. The quick recap, all right, catch you up to speed where we're at, what the whole book is about. It's good to understand the whole line of thought behind the book because it is all tied together with one specific line of thought. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of believers, people who were convinced and had converted to Christianity. This is in the first century, all right, so most of them were Jews uh, and had grown up with the Jewish tradition, the, the sacrifices and the temple and the synagogue and all that stuff. And the Mosaic Law, with all of its, uh, that covenant and the restrictions and the sacrifices, offerings, and whatnot. But this group had uh, heard the testimony of Jesus Christ and what he had done, and they were Christ followers. And they were pursuing Jesus Christ uh, in a very strong way, and we're going to look at some of those examples in the text here. Uh, they weren't just nominal Christians. They were really going for it in the face of persecution, um, and even uh, their their possessions being plundered. Um, But they had reached a point in their faith where they were losing steam. uh, And and, and some were even questioning. And some were even kind of sliding back and moving back into some of the old ways of Judaism, which is really a different religion and and really a different method of salvation, which is a, a false method of salvation. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them Uh, for three reasons. One, to encourage them in the faith of Jesus Christ. uh, Number two, um, to remember what it is that they put their faith in. But three, uh, to warn them, uh, to to give a very strong warning. Not a, "Eh, eh, 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 you got to be careful here, but a very strong, strong warning and even um, cautioning them about the roads of apathy that can lead to very dangerous places. So that's the summary, all right? So we're picking up in Hebrews chapter 10. We're well along in the book in verse 26. What I would like to do is I want to read this, uh, the whole text that we're going to look at this morning, and then we will go through it uh, in three pieces. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, I'm reading from the ESV. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There's a lot here, <laughs> all right? But there's, there are three pieces of this text that I want to look at this morning. All right, so go back to verse 26. There are seven warnings in the book of Hebrews, and this is the fourth, all right? And it starts off by saying in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you're going to move forward in this text, it's pretty important to understand what the beginning of the text that we're looking at is saying. If we go on sinning deliberately, and I looked at that when I was studying this passage this week, and I started wondering, what is that really talking about? Because if you read it in one lens, it can be really stinking scary, you know? If you go on sinning deliberately, uh, there's no longer any, uh, any, no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's not saying, um, you know, if you keep on sinning, um, things aren't going to work out as well for you, you know? Or if you keep on sinning deliberately... Um, you know, God will withhold his, his blessing from you. Or if you keep on sinning deliberately, um, the joy of the Lord will be removed from you. I mean, this is, this is kind of calling down hellfire, isn't it? Uh, the fury of fire, it will consume its adversaries. And then it says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. Verse 29, how much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant? I mean, these are, these are all, you know, connectors to deliberate, deliberately sinning. Or who has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then it wraps up by saying, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Whoa. <laughs> uh, whoa. What is this talking about with deliberate sin? Because I think we've all struggled with deliberate sin, haven't we? Some commentators, and I guess anybody who would think with, with some level of theological common sense, says that all sin 
at some level is deliberate, right? I mean, that sin is a conscious act of the will, and uh, whether to obey or not to obey the laws of God. And so we've all had things that we, that we consistently struggle with. We've probably all had some sort of habitual sin at some level, whether we've been able to conquer it at this moment or not. But it starts off by saying, if we go on sinning deliberately. So this piece of scripture, verses 26 through 31, is actually a throwback to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Now again, the audience all right, that is hearing this text knows the Torah. It knows what we, what we call the Old Testament really well because they were raised with it. All right? They were raised with it because a lot of it was written in song and in poetry. And Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 is uh, Moses speaking a poem or a song that he gave to the children of Israel so that they would memorize for the sake of memorization. All right? And that song or that poem that Moses gave the children of Israel was a call specifically to remember, to remember God's, his kindness, his character, um, his commands, but also a call of the children of Israel uh, to be warned. And as this song in Deuteronomy 32 wraps up, it wraps up with words that say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, it's not, it's not a hateful, <laughs> like a grrr, but it's a, it's, it's a building up of God's character of like, this is who I am as God Almighty, outlining his character. And then it goes into it saying, this is who I am as God Almighty, and it outlines his faithfulness, all right, and his goodness, and his commands for his glory and for the good of his people. And it seems like that the logical train of thought when you're going through something like that to memorize is also a very healthy Loving, be warned, you know, be warned. And, and, the, and the simple example that, we sh- that we, anyone could, could kind of go to is how a parent raises his child, you know, be warned because we don't want you to get hurt. Be warned because we want you to succeed. Be warned because we want you to be healthy. Be warned because we want you to live a life of integrity. It, w- it will benefit you, but you need to be warned. A strong caution that if you walk down certain roads, it can actually lead to death, you know? I'm going to warn you, Evie, you know, be careful of the street. Not just, eh, you know, if you walk in the street, you might not find a good job one day. Or, eh, be warned, if you walk out in the street, um, you know, people won't really like being around you. You know, but be warned because you could lose your life. And I'm going to say that powerfully, and maybe with some gravel in my voice, but it's because I love her. So when the author is going into this, if we go on sinning deliberately, there's a lot of of that deliberate sin context in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I want us to flip back there and check out the context of some deliberate sin. So flip back to Deuteronomy 32. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes I have to work through it in my head. I learned it as a child, kind of where, where it falls. So go back to the beginning of the, of the Bible, and it's the fifth book in. And it's okay if you have to use your concordance. But if you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible app, I would love for you to look at it. All right. 
we're going to back off of 32, and I would like for you to jump to Deuteronomy 17. I'm sorry. Roar. <laughs> the song that Moses has spans larger than 32. All right, Deuteronomy 17, 12. It says this, The man who acts presumptuously, all right, which is really the same word and the same tone as deliberate sin. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priests who stands to minister there before the Lord our God or the judge, the man shall die. He shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priests, all right, the one who is ordained by God to relay the covenant. And, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. If you weren't here, it's okay. But the covenant, the Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament was God's firm way of saying this specifically in an outlined way is how you deal with me and how you interact with me and how I will interact with you. This is not up for debate. This is not touchy and feely. This is not like, hey, how do you feel like I would respond best? No, I'm telling you. Point one, point two, point three. All right? This is how you do it. And if you disobey it, what's left? Right? What's left? Judgment. Because God is saying that this isn't up for debate. I'm, I, I'm God. You are not. I am holy. You are not. I'm pure. And you are not. So when I say that the priest is the one that you must go through in this system for now, you must obey. If not, you're sinning. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister, the go-between, there before the Lord your God or the judge, the man shall die. I mean, this is calling upon a death penalty for the man who lives in deliberate sin. Because the man who lives in deliberate sin in this context almost acts like a virus. That the man who lives in deliberate sin in the community of believers doesn't exist there without affecting the body. It, it, it doesn't exist. And, and if there's a man who is liber, living in deliberate sin in a community of people who are, who, are, who are believers, whether it's Old Testament believers or New Testament Christ followers, the yeast will spread. The infection will spread. And God is saying that I am so holy and I want to protect my people so much that we're going to address this grave issue. Continue in Deuteronomy verse 29, excuse me, chapter 29, verse 16. This adds some more meat to the bones of the presumptuous sinner or the deliberate sinner. Deuteronomy 29, verse 16. I want you to, when, when we read this verse, what stands out in this, in this body of text right here in Deuteronomy 29 is how these presumptuous sins are not outright sins of rebellion, are not outright sins of, of refuting God's ways, but they're sins 
that are committed in true quietness of the heart. And the text is bringing it to light that's saying that is dangerous. Horribly, horribly dangerous. Deuteronomy 29, verse 16. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Pause. All right, this is speaking to the children of Israel who had been there and done that. Like they had seen God. You know, I mean, to, to come from Egypt as the children of Israel where you had lived generationally, you didn't know life before Egypt, but to see a man of God by the name of Moses who called down uh, the, the, the plagues and saw that this is God's curses on, on our captors. This is our God. And that that, that, that God has, has freed us. And that God has, has split the Red Sea and brought us to the point of salvation and then defeated our enemies behind us, right? And then leads us out to Mount Sinai where, where Moses meets on the mountain and he actually meets with God and gets his word from him. I mean, you experienced that, all right? There is a, there is a greater level, really, of awe and responsibility for those who have seen it and experienced it. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Verse 17. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe. You see how it's growing? A man or a woman that's individual or a clan or a tribe, the man or the woman that can, that can influence and, and, and spread. A man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to serve the gods of those nations. Their heart is turning away. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, small, unseen, Underneath the surface, the root that, that eventually later will grow into a tree that produces fruit that you'll see. But beware of that root. Beware of the sprout. Verse 19. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. He's not talking to other people. He's not meeting in a secret society saying, hey, we can refute this. You know, we can split off and make a faction. And the quietness is of his own heart and arrogance saying, I'm okay without this. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike, meaning that that will lead to places of judgment that will have a broader sweep for those that are pursuing Christ and those that are not. There are consequences when this comes into the camp. Verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot his name out from under heaven. Verse 21, the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. In the next generation... 
Your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from the land afar will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown today growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. Verse 24. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And he went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not um, allotted to them. Verse 27. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Uh, I mean, that's straight up depressing, isn't it? I mean, it is like... <laughs> I mean, the image, the image of God kind of like, like God is going to zap me if I sin kind of comes from texts like this, except God doesn't do that simply when you sin. Jump back to Hebrews 25, Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning deliberately or living in presumptuous sin, then these things happen. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Because if you keep living one way, even though the light has been turned on and you know, then what, what is left to turn you? Is there a brighter light that will show you the way? You know? If the light is already turned on and you refuse to live by it, we just need a lighter, a brighter light bulb? I mean, what do you, there's nothing left. That's what the text is saying. This is where it gets a little crazy to me. If we go on sinning deliberately, it says in verse 26, look at the verse right before it, verse 25. Look at 24. That's the middle of a sentence. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Great. We, we ought to do that. I love that verse. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, if we go on sinning deliberately. You know, the whole text before is 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 bright and encouraging and, and let us do these things and let us have faith and hope and love and let us spur one another on until the day is coming when 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 the promises will be fulfilled and the only negative in that bright text leading up to this is don't neglect meeting together because if we go on sinning deliberately what is left what the author is saying here not, what the author is not saying is, is if you skip church, you're going to hell. <laughs> he's, not, he's not saying that. But he is saying that there is tremendous value in the very thing that God has established 
to grow his people, the church. God has said, look, this, this is how you interact and you deal with me now in the new covenant. We've been talking about that. All right? we're, away, we're away from the Mosaic law, and we have something called the new covenant. And it's different than the Mosaic law, but it still outlines how you interact with me and how I interact with you. All right? I'm a God of refreshment and peace and rest. I'm like a pitcher of fresh water pouring out. But you've got to come to me if you want to be refreshed. You've you got to sit under my fountain if you want to be nourished, if you want to have peace. Right? You don't get to decide where you find that. I'm telling you where it's at. And if you find yourself consistently saying, even in your heart, I don't think I need that, be warned. You know, If you find yourself saying, I can have less of that than what God has ordained, be warned. You know? It's not saying, you know, eh, you know I, I'm, I go on vacation every so often and I happen to miss church. No, no, that's okay. But in the last warning that we talked about in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 6, we talked about how nobody wakes up as a Christ follower in the morning and says, you know what, I think I'm apostate today. You know? I, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today I'm going to deny what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross and say, I no longer believe that. That it always starts with a road that is very defined and it's outlined in scripture. We know what it looks like. We know what the road to apostasy looks like. You know what it starts off with? It starts in the heart. It starts in the heart by saying, I don't, I don't know in my heart, I don't know that I need that as much. I don't know that I need to be within the body of Christ as often. I don't know that I need to be there every week. I think that I can, I can kind of make some of my own rules. I don't know that I need to be sitting under the teaching of the word. I don't know that I need to be under uh, teaching to, to learn deeper and deeper le- lengths of the Bible and doctrine. I don't know that I need community, true gospel community. I don't know that I need to have an accountability partner where I can confess. It just begins with that, I don't know, all right? And then it leads, it always leads. Unchecked sin takes you further every time unchecked sin, you always slip a little further. It's not one of those, I'm just going to bump down a notch and hang out here forever and be good. You know, you either move back in God's plan, or you slip further, and that takes you to places of apathy. We're just saying, I don't know that I need it, to like, mm, I'm kind of indifferent, you know? And that, that, that those steps of indifference always lead to other places, of removing yourself from different levels of God's requirement for us to be involved with the body of Christ. And if you remove yourself, even small steps unchecked from the body of Christ, then what, what else is, what, what, what is left? You know? If you're not sitting in Christian community, if you're not sitting under the teaching of God's word, if you're not coming together corporately to live as a believer because we were never designed to be solo, we were never designed to just figure this out and do it on our own without other people sharpening us, if you take those things out, you will get dull. And if you get dull and you begin to lose the fervor of your faith, then the author is saying here, that's a scary place. Because the person who lives as if they're not a Christian is likely not a Christian. But the Christian who claims to be a Christian and lives like a Christian, that's what, 
That's what we're called to do, where we're called to be. This text here in Hebrews 10, it, it gives an example of this in verse 28. And, 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 it's, and it's a throwback example of the Mosaic Law. Because it says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Because before the New Covenant, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ, before the New Covenant, when you were living under the Mosaic Covenant, if you removed yourself from that, if you set it aside, there was no forgiveness of sins. This, this was the way. You know? This was the way, this was the truth, and this was the life. And if you said, I'm going to set that aside, there is no forgiveness left for you. It, 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 there's not a plan B. There's not a, a conversation between you and God saying, you know, okay, if this doesn't really you know, jive with you, you know, come back to me with a good plan and I'll consider it. And it's the same with the new covenant. That if, if you continue to deliberately sin, all right, and in this context, it is talking about stepping away from the body of believers is what this is referring to. All right, this is not talking about, you know what, I, I just continually sin or I continually struggle with certain uh, sins. Uh, if you're addressing those, great. If you're confessing those, great. If you're looking for accountability, great. If you're memorizing scripture to battle that, good. Then that's a fight, all right? Then you're trying to pull yourself back by the ways that the scripture has showed us. But if you put your hand up and say, I don't think I need that as much, be very, very careful. That's one step away from saying, I don't think I need that. And the Christian who says, I don't think I need that, arguably, according to Scripture, is not a, a Christian at all. Verse 29. It says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was, sac by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. We saw in the in, last week, we saw how the giving of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the new covenant. That when the new covenant came, Jesus Christ left his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is alive and present inside the believer. I am in you. Jesus Christ said to his disciples before he left, and I'm leaving with you a helper, right, that you no longer have to abide by this list of requirements in the Mosaic Law. I'm writing a new covenant, which is sprinkled and ordained by my very blood, and I'm leaving with you my Holy Spirit. And if you say no to that Holy Spirit inside of you, what is left to convict you? What is left? For the person who does that is a dangerous thing. These verses end by saying, For we know the very God who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. These are not fun words. These are not fun texts. These are not, these are not, this, this is not a portion of scripture uh, that you put in a greeting card. You know, open it up, vengeance is mine. <laughs> you know, I will repay. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Love, Danny. <laughs> you know? But it's truth. And there is great warning here for all of us. 
Um, this week I was sitting with Buster and a couple other guys, and somebody asked Buster the question. They said, Buster, what is when you look at our body as a church, what is something that you are really encouraged by? And what is something that you are really discouraged by? And Buster's a very gracious man. And um, he said something that I wrote down um, with the discouragement piece. And he said, and it wasn't even targeted at our, our potty, but he just said, it is really hard to rise above the culture. It is so hard to rise above the culture. And I really believe that today, in 2015, you, your peers, your generation, me, my peers, and my generation, um, have a hard time rising above the culture. And right now, our culture, and, I, and I'm kind of talking about the Christian culture here. I'm not talking about people who don't even believe in the afterlife. <laughs> the, 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 the Christian culture, I think, is continuing, and I don't think I'm making an overstatement, but it's continuing to put a lower and lower value on the gathering together of the believer. That church is good, but not great. You know? You know where that leads? You see where that leads, you know? That, 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 that the, the fervent commitment of the believer to, to ruthlessly engage, to not just sit with the body of Christ is where our call is because that is how we get sharpened. That is, God said, this is how I grow you. This, this is how I make you holy. When you're around other people, and I'm not just talking about sitting in a pew and making sure that you're there at 11 o'clock on Sundays, you know, that you're here, that you're engaging each other, that you're looking for people to engage, to bring in, that you're looking to those who are older to lead you, that you're looking to those who are younger to lead them. That you're engaged in, in community where there's small groups of people who dig into the word. It's real life. And it's not just sitting here teaching. Even though this is good and we need this right here. But that you're in community. That we need that. And our culture is saying we don't. Or our culture is saying, we, I'm so busy, you know. So I'm going to do this, but not, you know, I'm going to do this, but not this. Or I'm going to engage here, but not here. Or I'm going to, I'm going to be you know, in, in the circle of influences, but I'm not going to push myself outside of that <laughs> comfort zone to really reach out to other people who may need me as a hand in the body of Christ. So as, as you leave Charleston, which likely we all will one day, and you find another church, you need to jump in. I mean, dive in. You know, don't play around. Don't mess around for six months. You know, get in and say, I, I'm bought in and I'm going to eat here. You know? And, and, and to rise above the culture. Because this text 
is throwing down the warning for people who start off and down that road of apathy and saying, I don't, in my heart, I'm not sure if I need this as much, which leads to, I'm not sure if I need this, which leads to, I'm not going to get, put myself under that fountain, which is apostasy. And then it gets happy. <laughs> Verse 32. This is, uh, I mean, it, it, this is just, it's, to me, it's just beautifully tied together because there's this stern, staunch warning. But then, in verse 32, it says, But recall the former days. It's almost like a fresh wind has just blown in. But remember, remember before. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, meaning after you committed your life to Christ, recognized that you were a sinner and that true forgiveness and true freedom and the very salvation of your soul, and the certainty of eternity. Remember when you found that in the gospel? And it impacted and affected your life. After you were enlightened, you endured hard struggles with suffering. And sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully joyfully accepted the plundering of your property? (laughs) You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You know? The author is saying, hey, let's, okay, I just threw down the warning. You got to listen to that. But, hey, remember when? Remember when this was so much on the front burner that it fueled your life? So much that you could stand up to all sorts of crap that the, that the culture was, was throwing at you. Maybe even literally. But you joyfully accepted the plundering of your possessions. I mean, I don't like it when somebody's, somebody dings my car. <laughs> you know what I mean? What if somebody kicked down your door and took your TV? You know, went through your drawers. And you looked at that and you said, it is good to be a Christian. <laughs> you know, because it's not about this stuff. You know, am I happy about this? No, but you know what? My soul is, is, is set on the gospel. And that is where I'm going to find my, my, my value. That's where I'm going to find my identity. That's where, going to, where I'm going to find my joy. Remember those days? And remember when your friends were just getting it from all angles? And you went up there and stood with them, you know, with arms locked and says, you know, I am with you. Remember those days? Oh, it's a good day. Because you did that at the very end of 34 since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It says that you knew, referring to your faith, that your hope was set, that you believed fervently. And you know what? Your belief showed itself. It looked a certain way. You took the suffering, and you took it with joy, and you stood by those who did. And you cared, for the, you cared for the needy. Remember when you went to the prisons here? You had compassion on those in prison because you knew, you, your faith, that you yourselves had a better promise, a better possession than what this world has to offer, which is the gospel. Your soul is secure and it abides. It continues. It is with you forever. Verse 35. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence. 
And confidence here, that word, can be changed with, with faith. Therefore, do not throw away your faith, which has great reward, which is the same statement that was just made. Do not throw away your faith, your confidence, your trust in the better possession and the abiding possession, because it has great reward. And verse 36 is the thesis of this whole text that we're looking at here. It says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is what it's saying. You have need of endurance, which again is another mirroring of faith. You have need of, what is endurance? Keep on keeping on? Of an enduring faith. You have need to keep on keeping on because you've been slowing. You know, a run drops to a jog, a jog rocks to, drops to a walk, a walk drops to a stop. And when you're stopped, you never reach your destination, which is the promise. When you stop, you never reach the greater reward. When you stop, you never reach the better and abiding possession. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, because your faith always shows itself, you may receive what is promised. For, and here's a throwback to the Old Testament again, you see those, those quotes in the text there, verse 37. It says, he's saying be encouraged here. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure with him. The author here is combining a couple of different Old Testament quotes. All right, verse 37, he says, yet for a little while. There's a little tiny book in the Old Testament at the very end called Haggai. Haggai was a prophet. The children of Israel were, had been released from the Babylonian captivity. All right? they, had, they had lived uh, several generations in outright evil. And God finally said, enough. My judgment will fall on you in a greater level. And you will be captured. And you will be taken out of the promised land. And you will be captive in another land, Babylon. All right? Throughout the course of time, they are freed after 70 years. And they are allowed to go back into their land. And they go back to Jerusalem that has been flattened, and the temple has been flattened. The Mosaic law is still applying here. And the children of Israel are going back, and they are tasked with rebuilding the temple as a symbol of reigniting God's presence with them. This is where I deal with you, so you need to build the temple back. But they're getting beat down by all sides. All right? There are people who are opposing them, there are people who are oppressing them, even though they're back in the promised land. And this prophet says, by word of the Lord, keep enduring, yet for a little while, he says. Meaning, this suffering will end. It is just for a little while. And some people say, but it's not for a little while. It's been going on forever. But in the context of God's promises, I'm making you a promise, yet for a little while. And the coming one will come and he will not delay. And the coming one will come and he will not delay. But my righteous shall live by faith. 
All right, so keep on keeping on, just for a little while. Um, I like I like military movies. If you know me at all, you probably would know that. And it seems like any military movie, whether it's a, a real story or or a made up story, it seems like a common plot is something like this, right? You're fighting the bad guys or the aliens, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, and they're beaten down. They're beaten down on the door. And they're out there. And you've got to wedge yourself against that door. You know what I'm talking about? And they're, and they're beaten in. You know, and you're trying to hold them off. The, the image that I see here is the call from the man in charge to say, hold, hold the line, hold them off, hold the door shut. Hold. You have to keep holding, yet for just a little while, and redemption will come. Reinforcements are coming. The general is coming. He's going to be here. But you have to hold. He is coming. And what he's doing is saying is that there is hope. There is hope. Like There is a promised coming, but you still have a job. And that job is to hold that door. Because if you don't, then the enemy will break through, will succeed, and you will die. And that promised salvation won't come because you didn't hold the door. You see what I'm saying? And it's endurance saying, keep on. You can do it. This isn't indefinite. But in God's perfect timing, this will come to fulfillment. Verse 38 says, But my righteous, my righteous one, shall live by faith. So the beginning of this text is a, is a quote from uh, Haggai, and the second part of this text is a quote from the prophet Habakkuk, all right, which is also at the very end of the Old Testament. And the prophet Habakkuk, all right, he's living in a different time than Haggai. Haggai was living when the children of Israel were brought back, all right, and they were given the command that you can rebuild. Um, Habakkuk was living in a time when people were just living in outright sin, and it was bad, all right? Debauchery, child sacrifice. And Habakkuk was, was like, God, things are bad here. And God was saying to the prophet, judgment's coming. And judgment is going to come on my children by a nation more evil than my children, the Assyrians. They're worse. And Habakkuk is like, what? How could you judge a less evil people by a more evil people? That doesn't make any sense to me. And it's this dialogue between God and Habakkuk throughout the book, this book where God says, it is my way in my time. I am God and you are not, and I will bring about justice my way. And by the end of the book, Habakkuk realizes that he is not the one in control and that God is actually, in fact, trustworthy and that his ways are best. And God says that the righteous one shall live by faith, that that is my call. That is my call. It's always been my call, and it will continue to be my call, to live by faith. And the definition of faith is to keep on keeping on. At the end of verse 38, it says, and if he shrinks back, if he lets the door open, if he doesn't hold the line, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then verse 39 is, I wish this could be made into an anthem. All right? It says, but we are not 
of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not those, all right? So listen, all right? I'm the, I'm the author of Hebrews. I'm leading you. I'm instructing you. I'm warning you. I'm encouraging you. I'm reminding you of the gospel. So be warned, all right? You've slowed to a walk. You need to pick it up because if you don't, there's great danger. But you know what? Remember those days. Go back to those times when you felt that fire and that fervor inside of you. Go back to those memories of the gospel when you first believed. And remember those things. And let that faith fuel the way that you live so that you can receive the greater promise. There's a faith that is here. And it acts as a fuel. And there's a greater promise. All right? Or reward, it says. Or possession. All right? There's a faith. And what it does is to get here, is faith always has a look. It shows itself um, by doing the will of God, it says in the text here. Faith leads you to do these things as it leads you to the greater reward. And the faith fuels this, all right? But when you lose fuel, when that gauge is dropping, and this gets weaker, and then it becomes nothing, then you stop. And that is a dangerous thing. It's something to be warned of. And the author is saying, look back in those times. Look back when you saw the Holy Spirit moving. Look back when you remember the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your life, and you did something about it. In verse 39, it says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not of those. If you're a Christian, then I'm sure that you have had experiences in your life that you might call the mountaintop experience or the spiritual high you know, I, I've done youth ministry for years, and those, give me the nod if you know what I'm talking about, okay? You've probably seen or felt those, and they might have happened on a retreat, it might have happened on a missions trip, or it might have happened simply on just a really sweet time that the Lord was showing you things. You know, as a youth pastor, when I did that for so many years, I started developing a little bit of a, of a cynicism to the post-retreat spiritual high, or a little cynicism to the post missions trip spiritual high because it didn't seem to last right right it was kind of the crash and so my 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 thought process was if it doesn't last then it must not have been real and what i began to see was that it it, it is in fact real you know when you take a group of people whether it's students or young adults away and say you do a missions trip and next thing you know you know what we just spent the last seven eight nine ten days uh together having quiet times together worshiping together serving together uh, sharing the gospel together, praying that the Lord would do a work through us together. When you do that, even for seven days together, and we're surprised that it, it results in a spiritual high, you know, maybe that's just the way it's supposed to be, but the mission trip just gives you the opportunity and the, maybe the excuse to do that, and then you see it and you feel it. We're surprised when we go home and we go back to work and our quiet times, you know, shrink, and we're not hanging around believers, and we're not serving, and we're not praying, and we're not worshiping every day. And we have the crash. You see that? 
And so if you look back in your life and you see those times of a spiritual high or spiritual fervor, maybe it's because that we just need to, we just need to be serving more. Maybe we just need to be in the Word more. Maybe we need to be in better community. Maybe you need to go on a missions trip. You know, and that is not a shameless plug for stuff that's going on this summer, but maybe you need that. You know? Because good things happen. Maybe you need to re-engage your community group at a different level. Maybe you need to get into a community group. Maybe you need to make a commitment between you and God and some Christian friends and say, you know what, I'm not going to miss church on Sunday. You know? I'm just not. I'm not going to do it. I don't, want, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to even come close to slipping. But to go back in those lives and say, what were the things that made that fire burn hotter? And what that is, is it's adding fuel to the faith fire that shows itself. It shows itself in your heart, in your mind. It shows itself in your actions. And if this is dwindling, then that means this is dwindling. And it happens. We all live on the roller coaster of life. We all have ups and downs. God made us to be emotional beings. And by definition, emotional beings mean we have highs and we have lows. All right? But with the help of the gospel, when we hit those lows, the gospel shows us how we can take that fuel and throw it on that fire so that we can reignite. And it doesn't happen outside of the ways that God has already prescribed. Through the gathering together of the believer, through time of the word, through confession of your sin, through service, through giving. That's how he does it. And if you begin to start and tell yourself, I don't know that I need that, be deathly warned. But remember, remember those days, because we are not those who shrink away and are destroyed. We're not. We can rise above this culture. We can't. But we can't do it outside the context of the church. We were never supposed to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that it calls us to come back to you. Father, to sit under your fountain and be refreshed. And Father, we just we need that. We need to be reminded of that. We're fallen, we're sinful beings. Our sin is continual forgetting. But, Father, you've told us how we can keep living a life of recalling and remembering you, your word, and how you've worked in our lives already. We thank you for that. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the body of Christ. And, Father, thank you for this young adult group. Father, for the joy, Father, I have found in it and with these uh, sweet people. And, Father, please help us to rise above this culture. I pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Hope you guys have a great week. Hope you don't freeze. And have a great Easter. All right?